Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 14 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. This week we're talking about Irving Berlin's White Christmas. White Christmas was written by Norman Krasna and then completely rewritten by Norman Panama and Mel Frank. It was directed by Michael Curtis. Hey, Caroline. Yeah. This is our second Michael Curtis film. Do you know what the first one was that we covered? It is. I believe he directed Casablanca, no? He did direct Casablanca, which you and I covered with the fine folks at Married Mash as part of Frisky Fridays in <laughs> February on our Love It or Leave It editions. So check it out over there. If- White Christmas. Uh, a little interesting background. This is not the first time this song was performed. Irving Berlin actually wrote this song, White Christmas, for the 1942 film Holiday Inn, which also starred Bing Crosby, but it starred Bing Crosby with Fred Astaire. Uh, and actually, in 1942, it won the Oscar for Best Song that year. It would again be sung by Bing in 1946's Blue Skies which also starred Fred Astaire. So this is actually his third time singing White Christmas on film. Man, way to get some mileage out of that, huh, Irving? Right? I mean, all the songs in, the, all the songs in this, there was our, our orchestral music that was written for the movie by someone not Irving Berlin, but all the songs performed in this movie were all Irving Berlin songs. So that's why it gets the fun name of Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Uh, yeah, he actually originally pitched this to, I believe it was Paramount in 1948, that he wanted to make a movie based on the song, which, I mean, as far as movie ideas go, there are worse ideas to come up with than, hey, let's build an entire movie around this Christmas classic. I think this is the version of White Christmas that most people think of. Oh, definitely. His voice, that deep voice. Absolutely. As soon as he started singing, I was like, oh. Yeah, it, it, it kind of gives you chills. I mean, there for me, Christmas music puts you in the mood for Christmas more than anything else, just like snaps you right to. And this is one of those songs. As soon as that, that deep, you know, I mean, as soon as that like hits, I'm like, Oh, it's Christmas time. Give me a hot cocoa. Give me a wrapping paper and a tree. I need to smell pine scent or something. <laughs> I need scotch tape and, and pine smells. Scotch tape, a hot toddy, and pine cells. Let's go. Uh, is this a movie you had seen before? Is this a, is this movie in your family's uh, Christmas catalog? As- it is not. It is completely fresh for me. I, of course, have seen many times the images of Bing and Danny Kaye and the blue-dressed sisters dance number. Those two images are super-duper popular 
in like women's um, gift shop type of things. Like you can see the sisters back to back thing with the fans and stuff on all different types of things, T-shirts, everything is encouraging us to give them to our sister as a gift. It is a very common gift shop image. And then, of course, Danny and Bing doing their Santa Claus impressions is definitely another one that is constantly. It's weird. I don't know if that's a Southern thing. I don't know if that's everywhere, but it's super common in gift shops here. I don't think I've ever seen the blue feather in a, in a not in a gift shop. Though, when I heard the song, so for me, this is not a movie I had seen before. But again, one of those that's just kind of in the pop culture zeitgeist. It's in the Christmas, you know, milieu of like things that you just know and you kind of buy osmosis even when you haven't seen things you just kind of pick up i mean the movie's been around for 70 years at this point or almost 70 years at this point um so the song sisters was actually very familiar to me i don't think i'd ever actually seen a video clip of it performed i had Uh, never seen the entire the dance i just instantly recognized their dresses and the fans from Every Mother's Day display where it's like, here's what you get your mom. Here's what you get your sister. Here's what you get your grandma. It's always there. Oh, this is a perfect opportunity and a great segue because one of my questions I had for you for this episode was, have you and your sister or any of your girlfriends, have you guys ever performed a Big Feather fan dance number together? You guys get kind of wild with each other. I I, I struck me. I was like, this might be something Caroline's actually done. No, again, because I hadn't ever actually seen the dance number. I knew the the just the phrase because they commonly, again, add that phrase to the bottom where it's like, Lord help the mister who gets between me and my sister. That's commonly on those cards and whatever little trinkets. But I didn't actually know how the dance went. This was great to kind of put some things together for me within pop culture. I'm like, oh, no, now I know what you do as a guy. Have you ever done the spoof version where you're two men doing the sister's dance no i haven't done uh, a fan dance but i have no i haven't done a fan dance i'm gonna leave it at that uh <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about we could talk about uh, a further uh expounding on that uh, offline but no i've never done a fan dance uh though i found that to be probably my favorite well that wasn't, wasn't my favorite scene in the movie but i think it was by far the funniest moment in the movie there was some real joy coming through on um, bing crosby and danny case face in that whole scene that i, I really like appreciated that i don't i didn't see this in the facts but i felt like the part when danny kept like hitting him in the chest with the fan was like either unscripted or he did it a little bit harder than he needed to or something because bing was cracking up by the by the third time he does it it seemed like he was not expecting it so here's the thing that entire scene was unscripted danny k and bing crosby got dressed up and just to entertain themselves and the crew while waiting to move on started doing that whole scene and that whole lipstick routine improvised they were just they were just messing around michael curtis saw them thought it was was fantastic so filmed it and then like squeezed it into the movie as part of like a plot point so the entire thing was really improvised they ended up doing a couple takes of it the one with them laughing and bing crosby laughing was the best take that they could get of it uh, because they couldn't stop laughing while they were doing it i've read a bunch of things from a couple different sources where danny k apparently made filming very difficult because he just had everyone cracking up constantly he just couldn't he just couldn't not make jokes and not make everyone laugh. I'm kind of curious because that was a plot point. So that really makes me wonder, like, 
what were they going to do to try to get out of that situation? I, maybe they would have come up. Maybe they just would have performed as themselves instead of as ah, the sisters. Ah, good call. Because, I mean, of course, that's what we expected to happen. Right. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, when the fans come down and then they've actually put like the little bows in their hair. And it was just <laughs> very, very funny. Very, very it funny. It was really I love funny. when he starts whacking them, though. And it's, yes. yeah, it's, there's a real feeling that comes through when you capture someone laughing for real on film that just feels and it hits differently than when it's staged laughter. I don't know if you've ever noticed like in TV shows, every now and then it happens in TV shows, especially where, because they can't keep doing takes, you'll notice like someone maybe cracking uh, or oh, you yeah. watch SNL, right? I mean, I'm sure you've of seen course. it. Like, yeah. do, you, do you appreciate when the characters break, uh, break, you know, the fourth wall and kind of start laughing at what's happening on stage? I do. I really do. Especially in a situation where, you know, Bing is, is like a consummate performer, I'm sure. And so, you know, for someone like that to break and really just be enjoying himself, you're like, this is good stuff. <laughs> it feels very behind the scenes. It feels very behind the scenes. It really brings you into the world. And it. I think as a viewer, it lets you be in on the joke with them because it is them letting their guard down. You're, you're seeing a real emotion instead of an acted emotion. It actually brings an interesting question on casting. I think this is the first time Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye had worked together. He had uh, Danny Kaye had worked with uh, Vera Ellen, who plays Judy Haynes before in a movie. But this is the first time he had worked together with Bing, and he was actually the third choice for the role of Phil Davis. Originally, this was a project for Bing to reunite with Fred Astaire, who had worked together, like I'd said in earlier, in Holiday Inn and Blue Skies. Fred turned it down, read the script, turned it down. Then they cast Donald O'Connor, who was in Singing in the Rain. He was the but he was the next male lead after Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. He became sick right at the start of production, and so he had to bow out. So then they turned to Danny Kaye, who was you know well known by this point as a crooner, as a great singer, not so much as a dancer. So Danny Kaye really came in with, and then the, that led actually to a bunch of rewrites of the Phil part to play up the Danny Kay humor for which he was known. Are you familiar with any Bing Crosby movies? He's the really, I mean, there's Rosemary Clooney also, there's Danny Kay and Vera Ellen, but, but you know, this is a Bing Crosby film. Actually, no, this is my first Bing Crosby film. And that's kind of crazy to me because his face is so familiar, most especially his eyes. And I was watching this one with my son and I said, man, look how they put the spotlight right on his eyes and they're like sparkly. And he's like, I think the word you're looking for is twinkly. And I was like, yeah, they are so twinkly and blue, crazy blue. So his face is super familiar and his voice is super familiar, but his acting less familiar for me. Every time he went to express an emotion, like after he's done with his midnight, midnight snack, uh, liverwurst and buttermilk montage, oh she, I mean, disgusting, right? But she asks him a question and he's like, well, let me tell you. And then he begins to sing. He doesn't tell her. He sings to her. And that seems to be the real go-to Bing move. Like he's always ready to express himself in song versus maybe spoken word he seems much more comfortable singing i know bing crosby best honestly as the one who did little drummer boy with david bowie in the in the fake tv like home set that was like a very popular music video that you still see if you watch music videos at christmas time uh you see bing invite david bowie over and they sing little drummer boy together around a like a like a grand piano that's so funny what a funny twosome. I mean, I obviously I know White Christmas and I know the uh, that whole Bing Bingism. <laughs> 
just go, well, listeners, you have no idea. I have literally been singing like White Christmas pretty nonstop before we started recording, so I don't want to damage your eardrums with it. But I uh, love now. how you just but, do that. Like, that's all you have to do. That's all you have you to know. do. You know, you like, name this song. And someone's like, White Christmas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, who do you give credit for on that? Do you give that credit to Irvin Berlin? Do you give it to, to Bing? I think it's a two hander, right? It, it takes. It takes someone like a uh, Bing Crosby to bring that song to life to 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 make it so memorable. But you know, Bing Crosby wasn't writing that song himself. I mean, Irving Berlin is one of those pillars of the great American songbook. Uh, you know, like uh, Gershwin. Also, you know, you hear you hear their music, and it just spans generations. It spans interests. It spans race and ethnicity, gender. I mean, it's just one of those things. You grow up knowing those songs. If you may know nothing else about them, but you know those songs. You know. I think so. I mean, they, they, which is, again, where do we hear them, Mike? Where do we hear these songs? Because it's not like they necessarily play them on, you know, today's pop culture type, you know, TV shows or whatever during, during the holidays. Not normally, actually. Oh, oh I don't know about that. Well, I, cause. I listen to you. Oh. <laughs> well, cause I think, I think where most people hear White Christmas is in stores during the I'm holiday the season. The grocery store for me might be the actual place I hear it. Macy's, wherever, you know, department stores that, that pipe in music. I might be a little messed up because of the, of the 2020 Christmas season, not shopping in stores. Our local radio station, like um, that, that's like the what I consider like the dentist radio station, right. the one that they always play in the dentist. That one plays Christmas music like twenty four seven, starting right after Thanksgiving, and so I guess I hear it on that. But other than that, man, without going out in the stores, it's kind of getting rough to hear Bing. Uh, you know, I think you still hear music like this, maybe not White Christmas specifically, but songs like this that only exist for a month and a half out of the year in TV and films that do Christmas music-y soundtrack. Mainly, I think, because it's easier to license these old songs than it would be maybe to license something new. You can say a lot by just playing the one, you know, <laughs> you play a little bit of that and you've instantly told your viewers, all right, it's Christmas time. Yeah, we're going classic. We're going to we're going to tell you some story that's going to probably pull your heartstrings. Right. It's coding for holiday time. It's one of those things you can play the waitresses, you know, you forgot cranberries, too, which is fantastic. And I love that holiday wrapping, but it doesn't necessarily code the same way. We're like, oh, OK, I, am I in Christmas time? You hear white Christmas. You know you're in Christmas timeland. Exactly. So Danny Kay, I know even less about Danny Kay. I feel like I know him maybe from charity uh, sponsorships that he would go on to do in his later years. But uh, you know, Danny Kay, Rosemary Clooney also, and Vera Allen, uh, Vera Ellen. I don't know at all. How about the rest so of Rosemary, this cast? I get Rosemary actually funny enough through Gilmore Girls. Um, she is one of those that they listen to Rosemary Clooney. Uh, Lorelai does with Luke and then also Rosemary Clooney is brought up in the revival songs are played then with her so I knew her 
only as a singer, again, not as an actress. Danny Kay, I, the only reason why I even know his name is from our intro here, our beloved Christmas vacation, when he says the line about Bing Crosby and Danny Kay. That's it. Like, that not that crazy? That's pretty funny. Yeah, I feel like he's one of those people who just, for the for our generation and, and obviously younger generations, didn't continue to move through time someone like someone like a bing crosby even like a rosemary clooney which i think maybe other than the gilmore girl stands out there maybe know (laughs) her or at least know her name because of her nephew george of course you know who apparently used to call her auntie rose i was really trying hard to like look at look at her face and see if i could see his face in it isn't that a silly thing I really was like I was finding myself like scrutinizing her face to be like, does does George kind of look a little like her? She is definitely one of those women you would call a handsome woman. Yes, very much so. Kind of though, same kind of though for Vera Ellen. Vera Ellen. These were not your bombshells. Not not to not that that's important. But I guess. I- think she th- I think she was supposed to be though don't you I, I think she was supposed to be and I think she certainly has the dancer's body to go but you know I feel like there there were other women of the time that were considered more like the bombshells of Hollywood Vera Ellen I mean she I think she retired from acting just a few years after this movie she had such a classic original Barbie um look like that hairstyle that she had mm-hmm. that's almost the exact original Barbie hairstyle and especially with those big eyelashes and everything like her face as much as maybe she doesn't like strike you as like the most beautiful woman in the world I think that I mean it's just my gut instinct that she is supposed to look like Barbie or Barbie is supposed to look like her maybe Uh, well yeah but I think that's consistent though with the dancer body though and this is someone who was a rockhead at 18 one of the youngest rockheads ever and and just watching her move through this movie was impressive to me I, I found myself kind of really paying attention during her dance numbers because she was really, really captivating. I think she held the camera very well in those scenes. Um, she she does not sing uh, other than when they come off the train and they do their snow reprise. She doesn't do any of her own singing in this movie. Trudy Stevens actually does, uh, sings all of her lines uh, in the film, but she certainly is doing all of her dancing, uh, which is, you know, the value she kind of brought brought to this and looking at her filmography she got to dance with bing she got to dance with fred she got to dance with gene kelly you know she danced with the men of the time that were known as the big hoofers now that we're talking about looks do bing and danny k strike you as very handsome men of the time because i think i think this is also a time in hollywood where you have some you know golden age of hollywood hunks Oof, that's a hard one for me um, because I don't really look at them exactly like that. So, and just to clarify, old Vera Ellen, she was the model for Barbie. So Barbie was based on there her look. And also to note, uh, her dancer's body is actually a pretty severe eating disorder to the point where they, her neck was actually damaged because of her anorexia. And so like all of, if you look at all of their outfits, they're really high necked. Like they actually had to cover her neck all the time. Um, so that tiny little waist, while 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 attractive on stage, I suppose, came at a cost for sure. Um, when it comes to the men, let's see. I mean, 
I mean, when you really look at them, Bing especially, he has very much like a dad bod to me. Like he doesn't have a big belly belly, but he's just kind of, you know, normal looking. I don't think that he doesn't look like if you ripped off either of those guys shirts that there's going to be like abs or something, you know, even though there should be because they're dancers. And well, and that's also the double standard, though, right? I mean, yes, women were women expected to look to be- like Barbie literally, and, and the men could swig beer Just look like normal men yeah look like, yeah, exactly, exactly yeah i mean i didn't know danny k i really again hadn't ever really seen so i you know when i was looking at him i'm like you're so you know you're you're so much taller and thinner and everything but but i thought that he was a great partner for vera ellen like when they were doing that one whole series outside of the party that was really neat you know and boy did they really pull out all the stops with like the little trolley you know thing for her to hang on and go down like i mean there was a lot of great moves are you talking about the best things happen while you're dancing that yes. early number they do at the, uh-huh. the club my favorite dance number in the entire show and there are some really great dance numbers uh yeah. that, no, was, that was my favorite too yeah it was great i think it's because it was unexpected and it was like one of the first ones it was one of the first ones. It really kind of established that this was not going to just be music, like impromptu music, which is like kind of a bygone age. You don't, even when you have musicals, you don't really have musicals like this anymore, where people just kind of, instead of saying a sentence, they will break into song, like we were talking before about Bing. That's how they express themselves. But like the dancing was very impromptu often, which I really, really appreciate that. What's your favorite song from this? You already answered what your favorite dance number was, which you agree with me. But uh, what what was your favorite song of the number of songs in here? Not including White Christmas. I, feel I was like going to say, well, I mean, White Christmas is my actual favorite. I like the message of the best things happen while you're dancing is something that I feel like I try to explain to everybody all the time. Like everyone should dance more. I And so I, I do think the best things happen when you're dancing. I think it's fantastic. Uh, actual songs, though, like like just listening to it. That's a hard one for me. There's ones that I really didn't like. I did not like that snow. I actually wrote down that snow song sucked. I wrote that on my paper. <laughs> snow, snow, I snow. Like it was it. it was an interesting lesson. I I I like a song only because I liked how they were like, let's do a four part harmony here, and like, and it was kind of like, you know, if it was like the We Are the World video where everyone has like their fingers in their ear so they can hear themselves, it felt yeah. like very much like that kind of number. And I like the idea that you know these people are sitting on the train staring at a poster of Vermont, and they're like, let's sing about snow now. That's how we're going to express ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all the setup. And you can like the setup all day long, but the song... Not great. Barf. No, not Barf. great. Not great. Uh, I, I think the worst song for me is the I'd Rather See a Minstrel Show. I, I think in 1954. <laughs> right? Very unfortunate that this is still a concept and a song that we're singing about in 1954. Not not great. Um, I'm, agree. Su- I'm surprised that it, it even still exists in the current edits of the movie. It seems like the kind of thing that would have been filtered out at some point along the way. Yeah, because it wasn't needed. It was not needed because it's also part of like a, a, a kind of a montage of songs. Because at mm-hmm. the end of that, the final one, Mandy, I really, really liked Mandy. You did? Okay. Uh, I Tell did. Me about that. I, I, it was just, I like the, I like the refrain. I like the melody of it when they cut to later that night and you see Bing walking through the, across the property and he's singing it to himself. And then they cut to the girl's bedroom. Betty is singing it to herself. I like that because that's the kind of one. I like that because that's the kind of thing 
something I would do all the time. Songs get stuck in my head and I sing them and I hum them to myself, you know, for a long period of time afterwards. So I thought that was a nice little, a nice little thing like of realism that people would do, but it was also a catchy song. I was singing Mandy. I was making uh, banana muffins later in the day and I was singing Mandy to myself, just kind of like humming the melody along. I don't know. I found it really catchy and it was a great song and dance number. You know, it was the kind of thing in a variety show, like playing around that they're, you know, rehearsing here that I think you would see. Well, so was that your favorite after White Christmas? Oh, man. No. Um, I really like the best things happen while you're dancing. I like the song as much as I like the dancing. I agree with you there. I really liked Count Your Blessings instead of Sheep. As much as I was making fun of, you know, let me tell you how I feel. And then he sings. Uh, I actually, I liked the song. It just kind of, I like his voice. His voice is very soothing to listen to. Since we both probably agree that White Christmas is actually our favorite song, if we were allowed to choose that, then I, then I feel like I have to ask you, what is your favorite version? Because we get very two different renditions of White Christmas in this. We get the Bing Crosby solo with the bombs blasting all around, which if you allow me, I will play a a little bit of it now so you can sure, go re-familiarize yourself. Do you like the end version of the song better, which is the full production, four voices, full orchestration version of White Christmas, which is this version? What do you think now having been refreshed? It was important to refresh me on that because the some the subtle details matter in that one. I they're they're prefer- very different songs. I mean, I think they they're are. very they, they have completely different emotion and feeling behind them. The words are the same, but I think they're very different songs. I actually like being by himself and I like the little music box type sound behind him. And I, I, I actually like that exact moment when when Danny Kay has to kind of like rewind that up it was like kind of like a little moment too of like pause. That one just sells it that that whole idea of wanting to be so longing for Christmas comes across that one better for me. Uh, same. Uh, exactly. The word longing was actually the word I had in my head, too. Uh, even without the sound of the distant bombs bursting, uh, which you can hear in that recording that we pulled, it is a song of of longing and and and, and 
not sadness, but melancholy, the, the, the need for Christmas to kind of rejuvenate yourself. I think when you put the orchestration and the, and the voices behind it, it makes it more, the family is already gathered together, which is nice and, and wonderful. And it's a lovely song. I, I just, I, I feel the Bing solo more you know it it hits me harder as a as a as a bigger song of 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 needing something we should note that uh count your blessings was actually nominated for best song uh it lost in 1955 to three coins in a fountain from the movie three coins in the fountain funny yeah because white christmas the song wouldn't have been nominated it wouldn't have been eligible to be nominated because it wasn't an original song because it had already won in 1942 for best song (laughs) during for holiday Inn. you know a funny rule change came out of that 1942 oscars i guess it would have been 1943 irving berlin was the presenter for best song that year and actually opened up his envelope to say he won uh, which had happened, I think, twice before or maybe once before. Um, but afterwards, it was so awkward. They actually changed the rule to avoid that from happening in the future. Oh, wow. That would be so weird, though. What if you were like slated and then it was like, oh, actually, you can't open that one. You'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Whoa, what does it say? But I mean, but I mean, I guess I guess great that he won, though. Right. Instead of like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to read the nominees for my category and then lose. I think that's even worse. Yeah. But he basically he was like, oh, I get to be the winner. Thanks so much. I'm already here. I'm going to present it to myself. So <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. Kind of funny. Kind of funny. Yeah. I really enjoyed the music. I really enjoyed the dancing. You know what caught me off guard? And I was curious about this because I think you appreciate these things. Did you expect the movie to be as funny as it was? It was funny. And, you know, what actually got me right pretty much at the beginning was the choreographed conversation that Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby have when they're getting changed to go to, to be done with the show. And they're like tossing their, their like shoes and their, and the tie and they're kind of going back and forth and the way that it's going back and forth. It like sucked me in, in a way that I realized I hadn't seen that in a very, very long time. It's very Broadway show kind of move where you're, you're trying to um, have this sort of like extra little shtick that's going on. That's layered in during just a conversation, but because people are watching you, you know, you're trying to be more interesting, you know, that whole thing, it made me chuckle and it just like primed me to think that a lot of other parts were funny. Do you know the scene I'm talking about when they're in their dressing room? I do. I do. Actually, one I actually pulled an audio clip from that scene because of Danny Kaye's logic about how a girl is the most important thing in your world, which I'll play in a second. But I agree. I not only I f- say about the 45 minutes, that thing like cracked me up. And later on when he was like, it's worth 45 minutes to me. That's really funny. <laughs> it made me laugh like the whole time. And I had to like explain that joke to anyone who walked through the room. I was like explaining it. And then they'd be like, oh, that is funny. <laughs> In addition to the choreography of their physical interactions together, there was a real pattern to their mm-hmm. dialogue when when they're on the train and they're going back and forth about the tickets. Yes. And, and and he even says, I left it in my girdle. Like, uh, this, <laughs> the, the back and forth, the pattern between them was so say, good. Though? He said, he goes, maybe you left it in your snood. <laughs> I had to look up what a snood was. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I laughed for like five minutes about that. <laughs> 
You don't get enough snood talk. These you don't days. get enough snood talk. Bing is actually using a lot of. He was actually allowed to improvise a bunch of his like individual lines that the liverwurst and buttermilk scene that that midnight snack of foods make you have different dreams was largely improvised. But they allowed him to have a lot of his own bingisms in here where he would mm-hmm. use like a word like snood but he also says uh he says earlier on to danny k he says something like you're utsumi like really hard and i was like that's straight out of ajuda and mashugana yeah. and like like a real new york kind of where italian and yiddish words all kind of mingle together in a stew pot of like the northeast uh, like you're utsumi was like i was like i love that i'm gonna start telling people <laughs> stop utsumi <laughs> Yeah, no, movie was really was a lot funnier than I thought it was. Not just Andy Kay, but I thought people playing off of him really, really worked. You know, you had the Mrs. Kravitz type, uh, uh, Emma Allen, the nosy, you know, innkeep at the hotel. You know, she had lots of sass and lots of sarcasm. She had she had a real Carol Burnett vibe about her. You know, she reminded me so much of Mrs. Gulch that I was like, oh, my God, is this the same the same actress that played Mrs. Gulch? Right. So I go looking for her because I'm like, this is bugging me. She's so familiar. She's so familiar. Do you know who she actually was? Who was she? She plays Mary Lazarus in um, Sister Act. She's oh. like the woman with like kind of that longer face, which you totally recognize her. But she was so familiar. As soon as I saw her, I'm like, I know her. I know her from something else. I've got to go find her. I had the same exact Mrs. Gulch. I went looking to her just yeah. to see if she was in Wizard of Oz, but I didn't look up her career. Though I did see she she made a career out of being a sass. <laughs> well, do you remember her? She's yeah, a sass for, in that for one. For sure. Yeah, that was like her whole shtick was, you know, coming in and dropping some sarcasm as a commentary on She's how the main character. Arthur vibe. Oh, see, for me, Carol Burnett. Like, I, I have real strong kind of like you know, yeah. like waggling your eyebrows and kind of like, ah, you're gonna be like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally. I get that. I love that. I love a sassy, sassy woman in these ones. I just want to back up real quick because we were talking about looks and how these people interacted, like chemistry wise. Did you take a look at what the age gaps were across this cast? I didn't, but I would not be shocked if the men are way older bing is 51 at the time of this movie that is wild rosemary clooney 26 so he's literally uh, 25 years older than her and playing her love interest in this movie rosemary clooney at 26 who's the older sister here she's actually seven years younger than vera ellen who was 33 at the time of the movie was made well, and Danny Kay was also 33. There you go. So, I mean, but more respectable. I mean, so at least they were actually age appropriate. Rosemary Clooney's love interest is 25 years older than her. She is seven playing uh, the older sister to someone who's seven years older than her. And Dean Jagger, who plays General Waverly, he was actually like three or four months younger than Bing Crosby. That's and he's funny. playing like the old man, you know, yeah, yeah. crazy. I give Bing a lot of credit because, you know, he was still up there. He was still performing, you know, much older and doing great right next to someone who is 20 years younger than him. I really think if not for his like receding hairline, I think that's the only thing that really belied his age. He had a he had a youth about him in his personality. It's his eyes, Mike. It's his eyes. Those twinkling blue eyes. Very twinkly. 
Mm -hmm. It makes you feel like he's just very young and playful. Uh, They were for sure mesmerizing. I mean, they they talk about him and Danny Kaye talk about the girl's eyes in the Mm -hmm. scene where they're watching the sisters act. And they never hit, especially Rosemary Clooney, they never hit her eyes with the camera, with the lights, the same way they do for Bing. Oh, I swear Bing must have something in his contract that's like, you you have to put the twinkle in my eye. (laughs) Yeah, I don't find myself staring deeply into men's eyes often. And it was it was it was hypnotic almost. How could you not? They're beautiful, beautiful shade of blue and so bright. This is a a podcast where we're trying to figure out, is this a Christmas movie or not? And I I think we should probably get to that discussion for White Christmas because it, it sounds like it should be a slam dunk. You've got White Christmas being sung twice. You've got Big Crosby, who is synonymous. I mean, he's probably maybe only second to Santa Claus himself as being synonymous with Christmas. But is this a Christmas movie? I don't know. <laughs> so are you ready to get into that a little? I am. I am. So I think I'm going to say that it is a Christmas movie. And I'll tell you why. Because it does hit on the same notes that It's a Wonderful Life hits for me. It has all of those moments of of hope and working together towards something very, very Peanuts Christmas, Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, getting something together and making it happen and making it end up being more special than it would be if it wasn't Christmas time. There's that sort of that whole um, feeling of like a miracle could happen and everyone could believe in something. That's for me, like a huge part of this and has the music, which is another big part. I have to have something that makes me feel like there's got some some Christmas songs in there. But I just I think that overall the vibe is right. It is so much more right than those movies that we're we're saying like like say last week with Batman we're saying, you know, okay, that one, you know, it's Christmas adjacent. You you might watch it during the holidays. It might even come on during the holidays on TV. But, you know, Christmas isn't that big of a deal in it. This one, I feel like it's the same kind of thing. It would absolutely come on, but it relies on it being Christmas and and or at least winter time, which maybe that's not enough. I don't know. We're going to have to decide. That's the that's the whole setup. If, it, if we weren't talking about the snow, we weren't talking about basically someone being in distress and needing help. That all feels right on. So I watched this for the first time and I came out of it to myself and I was thinking, I don't think this is a Christmas movie. I have in my notes here. The movie starts with mistletoe in the credits. All right, you're, you're sending clear signals. You're coding Christmas time. It starts, uh, the actual film starts at Christmas Eve. You have the white Christmas, Bing Crosby solo white Christmas right away. All right, Christmas. I'm, I'm feeling Christmas time here. And then that's it. Like, there's no more talk about Christmas time. For God's sakes, they go to Vermont. All right, snow, snow, snow. There's no snow in Vermont, the ski town. Oh, man, where was the Christmas here? And then at the end, uh, I'm sorry, during Mandy, you have lots of red and greens. uh, So very Christmassy. Okay, so it's not a song about Christmas. It's a song about Mandy. uh, But you're at least visually giving me Christmas time. Nothing else in the playing around production is screaming Christmas to me. The first part of the movie takes place in Florida, for goodness sakes. And then you have 
this end production where the final part of the act is, again, on Christmas Eve, is all of them coming out in their Santa suits and the ladies in their Santa skirts. Uh, and there's snow and there's a tree and there's white Christmas and then snow has come to Vermont. And so I watched the first time and I thought, man, this is hoodwinking people. This is not a Christmas movie. This is just a fun rom-com set at Christmas time, but it's not about Christmas. And I was a little disgruntled about that. I feel like I had been sold a bill of goods. I had been lied all my life that what Ber- Irving Berlin's White Christmas was actually about Christmas, and it wasn't. <laughs> okay. I was writing to the board that you take these complaints to. Yeah. Uh, you know, dear sir, this is not a Christmas movie. You have lied to me my entire life. And then I watched it again to take my notes. And then I it really sank into me the idea of – there are two plots in this movie. The first plot is Phil and Judy trying to matchmake Bob and Betty uh, while falling in love themselves. Plot two, save the Generals Inn, save Columbia Inn. And watching it the second time, especially the Generals plot line, the, the love that they have for him, the, the way especially Bob Wallace, Bing Crosby's character, hops to and really pulls out the stop to, to put on a show so that they can get butts in the seats and save the inn. Then the magic element of their production somehow producing snow at the end and making it snow Mm -hmm. a very magical a a very miracle a very magical element which has been a key factor of our true christmas movies uh i i started thinking i was like you know what this actually is a christmas movie it actually does have a lot of the elements that we've been talking about that make up christmas movie it has this magical feature it has uh goodwill towards men which is something we talked about in batman that Mm -hmm. that michael keaton says kind of offhandedly and disgruntedly but really not about i mean the movie's not about really goodwill towards men at all uh batman this is this is about goodwill towards a very specific man it's about you know post-war america and the idea that generals are unemployed there's no there's no space for them that they're these relics but for 151st Division, this general was extremely important to them and that people would travel all over the country to come support him. You don't get more goodwill towards men, I don't think, towards that. And Bing and Danny Kay, Phil and Bob, Bob and Phil, they're brothers for all intents and purposes. They're bound by an experience in a war where he saves his life. You have literally sisters you know, trying to do and make each other happy, trying to improve their lives. So now you have family. So now watching it again, I'm like, man, it really actually hits a lot of the themes yeah. for Christmas. Can I throw in one more? Please. Because it made me think when you're talking about the general, it also hits the idea of, of a gift, giving a gift of something that someone needs and someone desperately wants. And it's not a tangible gift. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's that whole everyone coming together and supporting the general. That's the gift mm-hmm. that they're giving him. And I think that that plays so beautifully specifically not about the tangible thing right because that's the whole that's the that's the macguffin of this movie is that yes, betty that it was through all the, about money that it was going to be about money and leveraging for you know davis and wallace you know making a hundred grand off of this which she conflates to two hundred thousand dollars and and all of that and, and the misunderstanding no it's specifically not about that yeah bing crosby you know bob goes no uh, to ed sullivan stand in ed harrison no <laughs> it, it's not about making money for ourselves it's all all about the general it's all about this intangible gift of hope 
man. And now yeah. we've got hope finally. I mean, we've got references to Bob Hope in this movie, which I love, but now we actually <laughs> have real hope it being introduced into it. You don't get more Christmassy than that, Caroline. And that, and that like fellowship part that we talked a lot about, about why, you know, it brings tears to my eyes at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, why we have that extra pause when all the kids decorate the Christmas tree on Charlie Brown Christmas and, and it, miraculously goes from this little twig of a tree to this full, beautiful tree. It's that moment, that intangible, that I think that we're starting to drill down on as like, if you got that part, I think that 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 pushes you over into the Christmas movie. Could you have this movie at any other time? Yes, you could set this movie, the the plot line of matchmaking, you know, to people fall in love and saving the generals in that could be set at Thanksgiving time. It, it could be say it snows well into March or April and starts in, you know, October, usually in Vermont, in the in the snowy areas, the ski regions. So you could set this movie at other times, even if you have to send it during technically wintertime, because it, it's not specifically tied to Christmas. But in a way, it is specifically tied to Christmas. I don't think the elements of this movie would play as well other than at Christmas time. If you sat down to watch this at Valentine's Day, I don't know that you would feel like, oh, man, this is a great Valentine's Day movie. You know what I mean? I, th- I think that the the portions that we've identified as a Christmas movie really shine through on this. And it may not even be something that we can even put into words. It's something about how it makes you feel. And it makes me want to gather people together. It makes me want to have, you know, like hot cocoa and, and you know, be all cozy and everything. And that's a big part of what is a Christmas movie for me. I agree. I'm glad that I watched it twice because I feel like I my I feel like my brain wasn't open up to take it in the first time and let it and let it seep in, which is a good lesson that sometimes you have to watch something more than once to to really appreciate what it's trying to tell you. Because if I had just watched it that one time, I would have been coming on here and ranting and raving. And <laughs> I, I think I would have been missing out on on something that's actually, you know, pretty great in the end. I also think that it, it lends a lot of credence to the idea that when these these movies come on TV during the holiday time and you're doing other things, leave it on in the background because these are the types of movies that I think kind of grow on you Mm -hmm. and you hear different things and you see different things and you get familiar with the lines and they just hit harder after the second or third or fourth or fifth time. You kind of, they're almost, that's why they're, they kind of fall in also in that, like the first time you heard jingle bells, maybe it didn't hit you the same time as the thousandth time you heard jingle bells because it means something to you now. You are doing things while you listen to it that reminds you of it. And that's the thing. If you're wrapping presents and you turn on White Christmas or whatever, there's going to be a sense of like, I get this. I get why this makes me feel a certain way at a certain time of year. I 100% agree with you. Before we get into fast facts, were there any other things about this movie, Christmas theme related or just otherwise that you stood out, that stood out to you that you particularly liked or didn't like? I think, again, the writing had more moments in it than I than than most people appreciate when it comes to these this era of film. I think that there can be um, that feeling of like, oh, these might be slower or the plots might be more simple, those types of things. But honestly, when you get into the dialogue, mm-hmm. the one-liners that are spit back and forth, the vocabulary that's used, there was some stuff in there that I was like, I have got to remember this. You know, I, I want to use this vocabulary. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot there that people today, especially if 
if you're someone who just enjoys film, enjoys sort of like getting that that feel of the perfect word in the perfect moment, watch these older films because they have the vocabulary for me that I, I cling to. Words spoken aloud have such a rhythm and music to them, which is a paraphrase of something that Jed Bartlett says in West Wing. And it's one of my favorite quotes and it's a great scene in west wing he talks about the power of the power of words spoken aloud to move you and to move a crowd and to convince people of it this movie excels really really well even when it's the songs even when the dialogue's not being sung when it's just being spoken there is a pattern and a rhythm to them and a, a complexity to them that sticks with you and makes you pay attention it makes you lean forward and makes you maybe back it up a couple of times and then by doing that you really it really sinks in what they're talking about this is one of the scenes I, I mentioned it before this is danny k uh, spinning a nonsensical web but there's a point in here let me play it for you i got everything in life oh, i want sure i'm off my not a mile and a half you've got everything you yes, want I'm except loaded. the most important thing what's this a girl well, i'll get her out of that one of these days my dear partner when what's left of you gets around to what's left to be gotten what's left to be gotten won't be worth getting whatever it is you've got left figure out what that means i'll come up with a crushing reply what? it sounds nonsensical but he's making a point there that we can debate whether or not having a girl or having a guy to flip it uh is the most important thing in life but he's making a point that whatever you're pursuing there's a time clock on it that it, there, there's a very real possibility that it may be too late to act on the thing that you need to make you happy in your life, which is an interesting thing to think about and certainly a far deeper concept than I was expecting to get out of White Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gilmore Girls Gilmore Girls touches on this a lot. Um, there's a whole portion of it where Lorelai's like, I don't just want an ending. I want the middle. I want the part in the middle where you you have the time together, the relationship together. You don't just want to wait till the till you get married and you're 50, 60 years old and you just die together. Like you want the middle, you know? And so that's a whole part. I, I actually the more that I really think about the movie, I think that uh that a lot actually leans into Gilmore Girls, especially like we go back to the dialogue, the the fast pace and the back and forth, the rapid fire. Everything there is like why you lean in, why you love it. And I think that those lessons are important because there's a lot of people, especially now, people don't get married as young as they did before. And that's okay. And there's reasons for that. But also, when if you get older and older and older, you are missing your middle. You know, that's sad. There's something to be said for the middle. Bob makes a point when Betty has confessed that Judy is the one who wrote the letter, not their brother, in order to get Wallace and Davis down to see their act. And Bob is amused by it, and he talks about how everyone's got an angle, and he says everyone's got a little larceny in them, which I love. I mean, you're talking about <laughs> words and great vocabulary. The way he says it, he's like, everyone's got an angle. Everyone's got a little larceny in them. Is that true? Do you think everyone – does everyone have an angle? I don't know if it's true for everyone. I will say that I will just speak for my own self. I'll have a little confessional booth. I totally have a little larceny in me and I'm glad for it. Like I wouldn't want it any other way. If you don't have it in you, I kind of feel like you should seek some out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because it's yeah. I, and especially I think he's specifically speaking to people within the entertainment industry, in my opinion, in that part. And so he's yes, I think everybody, if you're in any kind of, you know, competitive career, you got to have an angle, you got to have a reason, you know, you've, you've got to try to stick out from the crowd. So that all makes sense. But 
just generally to the population, man, everyone should have a little something, something in there, a little like I, I was we were joking around. It was Easter time. And, you know, a lot of there's a lot of very serious. So I'm going to make a joke here. But there's a lot of very serious about, you know, dying for your sins. But if you don't get out there and sin, then he died for nothing. So come on and have a little larceny. No one is ever going to push for your own success and for you getting ahead and for you getting what you want more than you he's not mad about it you know judy did what he had to do it worked you got us down here it all worked out like there there ain't nothing sad to be you know nothing to be sad about is kind of his vibe push for yourself no one else is going to push for you or you can't rely on or can't expect anyone to advocate for you more than you and so if you have to have an angle if you have to have a little larceny in you in order to make yourself stand out well that's not a bad thing you know as long as you do it within reason and you do it for the good intentions, I think having a little larceny is not so bad. I think it's fine. I think it's even necessary. So let me ask you, are, do you think you're more of a, a more of a Bob or more of a Phil or more specifically, if you feel this way, are you more of a Judy or more of a Betty? Since Judy's the one that comes up with that idea to actually like write the letter and do all that to get them there, then I think of all of these people, I'm probably more Judy. In terms of like trying to get the ball rolling and trying to make things happen. I think that that fits me best. How about you, Bob, Phil, Betty or Judy? I think I'm more of a Bob. There's a time and a place to have fun and to to be silly and to wax philosophic. But there's also a time when you got to go to work. When Phil is riding him hard, right? When he's trying to introduce him to the girl. And uh, oh, that one girl, she's so funny. She, they introduce and she says, mutual, I'm sure. I know. Uh, which is not a re- proper response to the <laughs> no. word said to her, but it's just right. very funny. You know, and he, and he pulls Phil into the, into the dressing room and he's just like, stop trying to put women in front of me. Like I got, I got stuff I'm trying to well, do that here. that makes sense to me though, because you're a single guy. And so it makes sense to me that, that I can imagine you've been in a position where people would want to set you up and be like, you know, oh, you should settle down. You should have this girl, that girl. So that makes sense to me. Bob makes a lot of sense for you. Beyond that, which is not untrue, but beyond that is just the idea of going to work. When Phil is 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 writing him about, since, since we become producers, because you don't have a woman or nine kids in your life to occupy your time, all you do is work. And because all you do is work, it means all I do is work, and I don't want to work all the time. I definitely fall into the trap of just kind of go, go, going and not stopping very much. So I, I identify a lot, a lot with... Uh, with Bob in this movie, but you know, the right pair of eyes all, you know, make you stop and, uh, you know, figure out what's going on also. So I, I can be distracted if need be. We're always on the lookout for a Betty, but I'm going to be working until that happens until, until, <laughs> until, until I find someone to give a liverwurst and buttermilk sandwich to. I, I've run it up like four times. So I feel like I have to ask it because I think of all people, I think you're going to vibe with this more. Do different foods, Caroline, make you have different dreams? Ooh, I think that I sleep differently depending on what kind of food I eat. So then in that regard, I do think it affects my dreams. Do you see brunettes or blondes depending on whether you've had ham or turkey? <laughs> I don't think it's that specific for me. But uh, but definitely whatever I do in my day plus whatever I eat at the end of the day 100% does affect what, I, what I'm thinking about. And it does affect what I dream. How about you? 
Uh, I don't think food affects me. Definitely my day uh, comes out into my dreams often. Um, but I mean, I'm someone who I'm still drinking coffee at like nine or 10 o'clock at night. Oh, good Lord. Food doesn't affect me in any way. And food and drink doesn't really affect my dreams in any way. Especially stressful things will seep into my brain during sleep time often. You're not one of those people who like if you eat too late at night or any of that kind of business. No, only if it's something that is upsetting my stomach, not mm. not causing bad dreams. I, I, if I eat, especially if I eat like dairy too late or like spicy food too late, that will... I think spicy food too late messes with people. I think dairy messes with me more at this age than anything else uh, for bad <laughs> bellies hilarious. for sleeping. But uh, yeah, no, it doesn't affect my dreams. It just affects like my ability to sleep. So Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I like I like the idea that that was like improv. And if you watch it again, there's a little bit of awkwardness there. There's a little bit of like he's looking at sandwich meats and trying to come up with some kind of lines. <laughs> but it, it also has like an air of authenticity about it, though, too. It, it feels like someone giving homespun wisdom. Uh, and when you realize their age differences, there's so much in Bing's personality and the way he interacts with Betty, he's, you know, part love interest, but he's definitely also part like father figure the way he not that she looks to him, but definitely the way he treats her. Their age difference, I think, makes that make sense, which is maybe some maybe a vibe you don't understand until you realize in real life what the age differences are. Well, and I think, too, remember, they're in the same industry. And so I think that there's a little bit of, you know, mentoring there going on in a way that you could take definitely as like, you know, a father figure. But you could also take as just someone who's who's been in the business for so much longer than she has. And he has what she wants. So there's a lot of that that, you know, plays into their relationship as well. I agree. I think that's a really good point, too. And, and I think that's where he's getting at in the everyone's got an angle, everyone's got a little larceny conversation. Specifically, I think that's actually a mentorship moment that mm-hmm. he's he's trying to tell her, relax, like, don't be so defensive. Yes, you got us here. So judgy. Yeah. You, you got us here. Like, you're, you should be thanking your sister. You know, it worked. Did, did you catch who the picture of their brother, uh, Dog Face Benny, was? I didn't know who it was. Who is it? Uh, well, for us, particularly for this podcast, it's particularly funny. It, the person in the picture is Carl Alfalfa Schweitzer. Oh, crap. I knew it. I was going to say, was it Alfalfa? Crap. I should have said it. Ugh, it it was terrible. the second time that Alfalfa is coming up in our podcast that's because so he has an uncredited cameo in. Oh, it was a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. So I thought that was like a little fun, like just for 52 weeks of Christmas podcast. It was a nice little Easter egg. So, right? It's yeah. our fast facts Easter egg. Let's get into some fast facts. you have any fast facts of this movie that you want to share? Sure. I thought it was funny that Vera Ellen carpooled to dance classes with Doris Day when she was little. I think that's adorable. I love that. I love that. I love I I, her whole story, like that she, she starts dancing at 10, but she, she starts, she's a rockhead at 18. Like I'm, yeah. I'm of, I may, we may be one of the last generations that really appreciate the rockets because they've reorganized and they're not as, uh, much of a troop as they used to be. You know, they still come together for the Christmas spectacular at Radio City. When we were growing up, for me anyway, like the rock- Rockettes were the height of dancing uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. And beautiful, beautiful dancers. 
yeah, together individually, you always heard, you know, you have to, you have to be X, Y, and Z to even be considered. It's really the cream of the crop of dance troops. And so the idea that she was able to become a dancer, uh, to become a rocket at all, maybe during like the heyday of the rockets. And also that she was so young when she made the cut, considering how competitive it is. I think that's really impressive. Uh, me too. How about you? This movie was released October 14th, 1954. It made $12 million in its initial run on a $2 million budget. It ended up being the number one grossing movie. It was the top grossing movie of 1954. By a decent sum, the Kane Mutiny comes in second at $8.7 million. So it outgrossed it by, you know, just almost, almost $5 million. So it was, it was head and shoulders, the big movie this year. I think this this was pretty fascinating because, you know, we need we didn't really focus heavily on the music in this one, even though, gosh, it's really the backbone of the whole thing. But there's so many other songs. So I thought it was fascinating that at a dinner for President Eisenhower, Irving Berlin wrote new lyrics to G.I. Wish I Was Back in the Army, protesting Senator McCarthy's smearing top U.S. Army officials as communists. The fact that this that a song from White Christmas was used politically, yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah. But also, I mean, the the McCarthy hearings really affected Hollywood in a significant, yes. significant way. Interesting how this movie makes sympathetic generals in a way, right? The the whole idea, it it kind of was it was disarming to me to think that generals in the fifties had like no career prospects that they were kind of just tossed out and, and made to be like sad figures like general Waverly in this movie, because I think in modern days, you just assume, well, every general, when they retire from the army just goes works for a defense contractor. But I don't think defense contractors were as big an industry in 1954 as they are today. Well, and what is considered old and what is considered like still a viable person to be like working and stuff, I think is different too. Like, I think that we've have plenty of people who are working in their seventies now that back in the fifties, they weren't for a variety of reasons, healthcare, all kinds of things that like, that's not. So when in that letter, when it was talking to general Waverly about what an old man he is and like, he can just relax and all this kind of stuff. He, like we talked about, he's only in real life in his fifties. He probably even in the show is only in his fifties or sixties. That's still a viable working man, you know, in today's society. Almost expected unless you're, unless you're extremely wealthy, right. Wealthy or, or right. Or disabled some way. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm expecting to be working definitely well past that age. Right. My dad's 73. He's still working. So yeah. yeah, And that was a, that was a conversation we had at dinner about that because like the, the age expectancy is 76. And I was like, dad, (laughs) he's like, I know, but you know, I'm still working. The song White Christmas was not the only recycled thing from 1942's Holiday Inn. The actual inn used in this movie, the Columbia Inn, General Waverly's place, is the same set. It's the same building as the Connecticut Inn from the Holiday Inn setting. Uh, This movie was in color, so it had to be updated a little bit because Holiday Inn was in black and white. So they actually had to spruce it up a little bit, but it's the same exact building and set. That's wild. And the train scenes had to be actually shot at 20th Century Fox, the only studio to house a standing train set. MGM didn't have one, but it was more of a train station set than really like train interiors. Uh, that's really funny. I like the idea that studios would like work together for that kind of thing. Like y'all got a time. train set we can use? Sure. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. I like that in an interview, Rosemary Clooney 
said that it would have been a near perfect movie if only they could have dubbed her dancing. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I read that and then watching it when I was watching it the second time, I realized she really doesn't do very doesn't do difficult uh, choreography. No. It's kind of, She's kind of just like shuffling her left foot yeah. back and forth a little bit kind of thing. But, sure. <laughs> but I mean, what a combination though, right? She's the voice, Vera Ellen's the dance, you know, they make up a great sister act, you know, yeah. she's the dancer, she's the singer, you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> yes. there was a, an unexpected eventual uh, Academy Award winner in this movie. George Shakiris, who is an uncredited dancer, you see him in a lot of the production numbers. He is uncredited in this movie, but he goes on to win an Academy Award in 1962 playing uh, for Best Supporting Actor because he was Bernardo in 1961's West Side Story. That's amazing. You know, there are a lot of fantastic dancers who were like the background dancers. You know that there's other ones in there that, you know, had their own moments in time. At least I hope they did. I want to have. Yeah, the, the trivia that I had read highlighted a couple of them. One of them was John Brassia. He's the one he's noticeable because he's the one who's doing primarily all of the partner dancing with Vera Ellen. I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, how odd, really, that it's that it's not one of our two main guys. So when he was on so often, I was like, oh, him again? Okay. Yeah, so there's a great little story about that because the role was originally written for Fred Astaire, and then it was written for uh, Donald O'Connor, both significant dancers in their own right. When Danny Kay came on, he was a fine dancer, perfectly average and mediocre, but not of the level that he could hang significantly with any kind of complicated choreography that Vera Ellen could easily do. The th- best things happen while you're dancing. There's actually, he actually messes up. He kind of trips her uh, in one of their dip scenes that if you go back and look at, you could see, but she's such a pro, she covers for it. And so you can't even tell a mistake was made, but he kind of sticks his foot out and kind of trips her by accident while they're dancing because it wasn't his thing. So John Brassia for the production numbers that you definitely see uh, once they get to that part of the movie, he is the one who has to be paired with her often so that she has a partner of her caliber to dance with. It's wild, right? Mm-hmm. Mike, I was looking at your notes. I was peeping on them. I don't know if you knew that, but I peeped on your notes a little bit. And I saw that you said that the best during the best things happen while you're dancing sequence, Danny Kaye is wearing gray and Vera Ellen's wearing pink and that that was a hot color combination in 1954. What is fascinating about that, especially that you wrote that down, is that I was totally sucked in to his shoes. I was staring at his shoes so hard during that. Plus, I thought I had figured out the whole train ticket debacle that was going to happen. So when he put his um he put the tickets in his pants, and they were his show pants still, and he didn't change his pants. I thought, oh my gosh, surely he's going to think that that they're in another pair of pants. Like I thought I had figured out how he was going to lose them. So I had paid so much attention to what he was wearing, including his shoes, that it cracks me up that it turns out that the color combination was actually the important part. But I was staring. Those shoes were so wild. I know they're dance shoes, but they're just so 
funny looking. Like they had like no heel at all to them. So that he was kind of wearing like a ballet slipper. I, I know they're dance shoes, but it just, they were supposed to be out at an evening out. Like it just was really funny to me. Oh, well, this is the age where men would also wear full tuxes to go to dinner. I think maybe you just. But then you know, with black ballet slippers, Mike, because they're going to dance variety. <laughs> you brought a variety. You never knew when you were going to have to dance with a woman. Oh, I, I love think it. There's I a level it. of gentleman, you know, chivalry and manners going on here that none mm-hmm. of us can hang with today. I don't bring I it, several man. pairs of shoes with me when I go to dinner. I feel like after watching White Christmas, maybe I should. Maybe they I should. They sell these little shoes for women, especially when you're going to be like a bridesmaid or something and you're wearing uncomfortable shoes. They sell these little tiny ones that like fold in half and they're really small and they fit in your pocket and they are like ballet slippers. So maybe we'll have to pick you up a pair of those. I mean, I'm always the bridesmaid, never the bride. That's the... (laughs) But they could match your pants perfectly and then you can dance all around the dance floor. I I definitely need that in my life. I need to dance more in my life. But you know what we need to do right now, Caroline? We need to think about what our Jingle Bell ratings are. Okay. And as we're thinking about that, I'm going to play the clip from next week's movie and see if you know what it is. Okay. Midnight mass. Is it midnight already? Midnight. Running out of time. I should say before I play this clip, parents out there, if you're listening with your little ones, there's a few bad words in this clip. Oh, so I was you like, may is that wa- all I get? I don't may, know. <laughs> you may want to earmuff your kids before we okay. get going. Okay. Earmuff, earmuff children, earmuff. Midnight mass. Is it midnight already? Midnight. Running out of time. Wait, wait, wait. What the hell are we doing? What the hell's going on? He almost spotted us. I'm supposed to be at home with a Christmas tree. Okay, I get it, but why are you making such a big deal about this? Why are, because it is a big deal. Harold, who gives a shit what your father-in-law thinks, man? I give a shit what my father-in-law thinks. What do you... You wouldn't understand. No, dude, I don't understand. Look at you, man. You got a great job. You make good money. You don't beat your wife. What more could a Latino father-in-law ask for? Well. Wow, that was a lot. That was a uh, lot. Well, I heard a Harold in there. Oh, and yes. That kind of tipped me off, really. I think there is a Harold and Kumar Christmas movie. I don't know the proper name, but I believe there is one. So I'm going to shoot for that one. You are correct. It is a very Harold and Kumar Christmas from 2011. That is what we'll be watching next week, watching and discussing next week. If you want to watch along with us and get ready for our discussion, it's actually available for streaming right now on HBO Max. If you have a subscription to HBO Max, you can go watch it there right now. So, Okay, are we ready for some Jingle Bell ratings? I think we're ready for some Jingle Bell ratings. Okay, I am going to give this movie eight Jingle Bells. And I think that is because while it is not a part of my personal history, it absolutely has all of the elements that we look for. It has the hope. It has belief. It has coming together. It has the that intangible gift of giving your time and your effort and your energy, especially near to the holidays. That seems so, so special and makes that season feel like things could happen that you could never dream could happen. Yeah, I think that overall, if I had had a longer history with it individually, if I felt like it was more a part of things that I personally had in my traditions, I would I would give it a, even a higher score. But this is my own personal Jingle Ball rating. So I'm leaving it at an eight. How about you, Mike? I like that reasoning a lot. I'm right in the same ballpark with you. I'm actually giving it an eight 
0.25. Whoa. Why am I giving it such a specific rating? Because yes. I Why? gave It's a Wonderful Life an eight and a half. And I feel like this is very It's a Wonderful Life in the you have to think about the Christmas message a little bit because it's not over the head about Christmas. Uh, so I think it's in that, I think it's in that same, it's a wonderful life is a Christmas movie that this is a Christmas movie. Um, I think it's a wonderful life as a movie. I liked a little bit better though. I like this one a lot. Um, and I gave the nightmare before Christmas an eight. I went through my rings. It was the only eight. And I like this more, I think, than I like The Nightmare Before Christmas uh, as a Christmas movie, as a Christmas movie. So I'm splitting the difference between The Nightmare Before Christmas and It's a Wonderful Life. And that's how I get to eight and a quarter. See, and that one has everything to do with family history because I have so much history with Nightmare Before Christmas versus this one. So it affects my Jingle Bell ratings. See, there you go. See, I have I have so little history with so many of these movies that you're really getting fresh takes without it being encumbered by a lifetime, <laughs> except for a Charlie Brown Christmas, which still sits which, at what did I give that like a, like a 13, a like, a, like a 13 out of 10. <laughs> um, so, yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's no personal bias there at all. <laughs> uh, no, there's not any personal bias there. Not. Good. Oh, grief. my gosh. Uh, before we go, I actually had one more fast fact I wanted to say, just because I thought it was so funny, uh, and it was just a testament to how popular these guys were in the war effort. Um, at the end of the movie, uh, they perform a song, fill in Bob Do, gee, I wish I was back in the army. There's a lyric in the song about seeing Jolson, Hope, and Benny all for free. That's a reference to the USO wartime entertainers wartime entertainers al jolson which i didn't realize he was a uso guy bob hope which i think is synonymous with the uso mm-hmm. and jack benny which i also think i knew did like you know entertaining the troops kind of thing great line right the original words to the song were actually though uh getting to see a crosby hope and jolson jolson all for free but with Bing Crosby being cast in the movie, they thought it was too fourth wall breaking to leave a reference to himself in the song. That's funny. So he's not singing about himself, you know, go to see myself, Hope and Jolson all for free. So <laughs> right. they they swapped out uh, Crosby for Jack Benny. So that's really funny. Yeah, that's I thought that was funny. really funny. And it's just a testament. I mean, these guys were these guys were doing it. You know, uh, so much of Hollywood went off to war in, a, you know, for World War Two. But and then, then they came back and they were big supporters of the war and of the vets. And they did what they could because, you know, 54 is Korean War time. You know, we're only a few years away from the start of Vietnam. And so USO was a very important thing for overseas uh, soldiers. So, yeah, interesting. I love it. Well, Mike, I'm super looking forward to week 15 of our 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. You guys, thank you so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast and all of Pod Clubhouse podcasts over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could leave a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to mail you liverwurst and buttermilk in the mail. <laughs> that will make you have bad dreams, people. Don't do it. Don't make don't us. do it. We don't will. It. We will mail you liverwurst and buttermilk. Don't Christ. test us. We'll talk to you next week for a very Harold and Kumar <laughs> Christmas. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. 
please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. 